I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 24th, 2012. Coming up, we explore the largely unexplored world of underwater volcanoes. And the scientific importance of taking a nap. Sleep is good. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Most people know that expressing a deep-held belief feels different from calculating costs and benefits. New research suggests that, in fact, our brain processes sacred values and cost-benefit analyses very differently. A neuroimaging experiment shows that personal values that people refuse to disavow, even when offered cash to do so, are processed differently in the brain from those values that people willingly sell. A strong religious belief or a national identity, for instance, what's considered the realm of the sacred, is a distinct cognitive process. That's according to the study's lead author, Gregory Barnes of Emory University in Georgia. He directs the University Center for Neuropolicy. Burns said that understanding how people make decisions involving sacred values has major implications on grasping what influences human behavior across countries and cultures. For instance, future conflicts over politics and religion will likely play out biologically, Burns said. Researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging to record the brain responses of 32 U.S. adults. Granted, that's a small study, but the researchers found that through the brain images that values people refused to sell, or sacred values, were associated with increased activity in the left temporoparietal junction. That's the part of the brain associated with reasoning about other people's beliefs. And the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain associated with planning cognitive behaviors, personality expression, decision-making, and moderating correct social behavior. However, the processing of Cost versus benefits, on the other hand, was not correlated with such brain activity. When people worry about a mean boss or a backstabbing friend, they sometimes joke that the stress makes them sick. It turns out they're right. In a study published today by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists, researchers at UCLA show that people who report being socially stressed tend to be more stressed physically. To figure this out, researchers ask volunteers to write about their social lives and stress for eight days straight. Then they took a swab of saliva from each volunteer and measured inflammatory cytokines, which indicate physical stress. The cytokines were highest when test subjects had complained about a stressful job, stressful friendships, or unrequited love. The study's lead author, Jessica Chang, says this reminds her to hang out with supportive friends. Especially as a graduate student, it's hard to know when to stop. We know that stress is bad for us. We forget that these everyday social interactions can actually have a cumulative effect. Chang says that playing a sport does not cause inflammatory molecules to rise. So on Chang's list of ways to stay healthy is fun ways to exercise. Now, much of that data about stress was derived from saliva. Up next is Brianna Draxler with another research breakthrough that's, well... It's nothing to spit at. About 1 in 12 Americans has diabetes. 
and one in ten Americans fears needles. Since the most common method for diabetics to check their blood sugar requires the use of a needle, this poses a problem. But engineers at Brown University have come up with a device that may eliminate diabetics' need for needles and blood samples altogether. The secret is spit. Researchers have designed a new biochip that can detect glucose or sugar levels in human saliva. These sugar levels are 100 times less in spit than in blood, and until now, measuring these low concentrations was impossible. The chip is about the size of a dime, and it uses a technology called interferometry. With the saliva sample on the surface of the chip, the scientists measure the light waves that are able to pass through it. The amount of this interference, as they call it, depends on the glucose concentration. The biochip is so sensitive that it can pick up amounts ten times smaller than a strand of hair, and it can be used to detect and measure the concentrations of all kinds of substances, even anthrax. This means diabetics aren't the only ones who could benefit from the findings, which were published in the American Chemical Society's Nano Letters in December. For How on Earth, I'm Brianna Draxler. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Most of our planet's volcanoes are out of sight and largely out of mind. Hidden under sometimes thousands of feet of water, volcanoes on the seafloor bubble and boil away without our knowledge and largely without our understanding. At the annual fall meeting of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco last month, Oregon State University volcanologist Bill Chadwick shared some of his research on these buried giants with How on Earth's Beth Bartell. Volcanoes and the ocean are two areas of great mystery, both with their fair share of engaging documentaries and books and research. Put them together and you've got a pretty intriguing topic, underwater volcanoes. The bubble sounds you just heard were from audio software, and the volcano sounds you heard were also from audio software. But this is the sound of a real, active, underwater volcano. That comes to us from Bill Chadwick, a researcher at Oregon State University who has been studying underwater volcanoes for over 20 years, transitioning from working on land after the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, to looking through the eyes of remotely operated submarines at the volcanoes of the deep. You know, volcanoes on land, they you can see them erupt, you know, rocks fall on your head, you notice them. Um, underwater, turns out, uh, eruptions happen all the time without us knowing about them. Uh, and yet, three-quarters of the Earth's active volcanoes are in the oceans, and so it's kind of this big earth process that we know next to nothing about. Three quarters of the earth's active volcanoes are in the oceans, and not all of these, says Chadwick, are created equal. Oh yeah, definitely not, yeah. That leaves a lot for us to learn. Chadwick says many volcanoes lie along spreading centers, the junction of two or more tectonic plates that are moving away from each other. Spreading centers are responsible for creating our seafloor. As the plates move apart, 
Magma moves up to fill in the gap. And in that environment, usually the eruptions are uh, very fluid, kind of like eruptions in Hawaii, you know, where you see red glowing rivers of lava, that sort of thing. In other parts of the undersea world, plates meet moving towards each other, and one slides under the other. This is called a subduction zone. The descending plate creates melt that rises to the surface and forces its way out. And those places uh, create volcanoes that are more explosive, so they have a lot more gases in them. The, the lava is more viscous, so the gas has trouble getting out, and that's what causes the, the explosions. Chadwick has seen both. We've actually uh, stumbled across a couple places uh, in the Western Pacific where there's actually, ex- you know, explosive eruptions going on underwater, and so that was the first place um, where anyone has seen, you know, an underwater eruption in action. So that was pretty exciting. And by stumbled upon, he means they were actually looking for them. In a general sense, though, not knowing what they would find. There's actually two volcanoes we found. One of them uh, in the Mariana Arc, north of Guam, is um, it's at the top of it's at a depth of about 500 meters, so that's 1,800 feet below the surface. There's enough pressure there, so it kind of subdues the activity. So we're actually able to come up, you know, right up to the vent with one of these remotely operated vehicles. Kind of really remarkable. We're able to, you know, just sit there and watch the activity, you know, within a few feet of the vent. That kind of activity that's really pretty jaw-dropping. Red glow at the vent and explosions, and, and yet you're kind of seeing it up close. And you wouldn't want to be down there in a submarine where... <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that. It'd be a little risky. <laughs> the second volcano where we've seen that is uh, even deeper um, at a volcano located between Fiji and Samoa in the southwest Pacific. That was a really interesting find because um, for a long time people didn't think that explosive eruptions could happen that deep in the ocean just because of the pressure, you know, but but boy, that one was really blasting away and forming these big gas bubbles, you know, like three feet across, and, and the video was just unbelievable too because there's like these red glowing bubbles that are exploding and That's, again, really jaw-dropping. But studying underwater volcanoes isn't just about watching them erupt. Much of Chadwick's time and efforts have been focused on a volcano much closer to his home in the Pacific Northwest. His latest work includes trying to predict eruptions of a volcano called Axial Seamount, which lies about 300 miles off the coast of Oregon in the northeast Pacific. Volcanoes like that one... They kind, of, they kind of behave like a big balloon. So when magma's accumulating underground, the balloon sort of inflates, the seafloor goes up, um, and, and this happens gradually between eruptions. And then during an eruption, um, some of that magma squirts out onto the seafloor, and, and then the, so the balloon deflates, the seafloor goes down suddenly. Um, and so, so we're trying to see that sort of pattern. 
And uh, the movements are pretty dramatic. The, during the eruptions, the seafloor can go down like 10, 12 feet in a matter of, you know, five days or something like that. So, you know, th- these aren't <laughs> subtle signals. They're pretty big. On land, ground motions at volcanoes are measured with techniques like GPS and leveling. But underwater, none of those things work. So Chadwick's group had to develop new methods. They used pressure sensors to estimate changes in the water column above the volcano. When the surface of the volcano is pushed up, it displaces the water over it, and the pressure at the instrument goes down. So there's, over time, there's this um, kind of sawtooth pattern where during eruptions, the seafloor goes down suddenly. Between eruptions, it's gradually going back up, and then the next eruption goes down again. So we're trying to use that pattern to anticipate you know, when the next eruption is going to happen. How often does it erupt? Well, that's something we don't know in most places. Um, so Axial Seamount had erupted in 1998, and uh, during that time we know the seafloor went down like 3.2 meters, so that's like 12, 13 feet. And then it was going back up, and we were making these measurements, and we, um, we published a paper saying that we thought it was going to erupt again before 2014, and, uh, and then it erupted this year. So <laughs> that, was, that was exciting and kind of actually <laughs> surprising. You know, oh, my God, we were right. <laughs> Obviously, our forecast wasn't very precise. You know, we weren't pinpointing a day or a week or anything. You know, we had a, we were saying within a few years. But still, it's the first time it's ever been done on the seafloor. So in, in 1998, the, the, its last eruption, we know the seafloor went down 3.2 meters, like 12 feet. So this time it only went down 2.4. So if we assume that it erupts at the same level of inflation each time, that means it's going to be a shorter time interval to the next one. And um, so it was 13 years between the last two eruptions, 1998 to 2011. So... You know, making that assumption, we figure it's going to be only seven years to the next one. So 2018, that's our <laughs> our tentative uh, forecast. And so we'll just have to wait and see if that happens. Seven years really isn't so long to wait to see if a prediction comes through especially if you consider geologic time. Until then, we're really only scratching the surface of understanding the mechanics of underwater volcanoes. Or, rather, scratching the ocean floor. With robot arms. For How on Earth, I'm Beth Bartel. And thanks to Beth for that report. You can check out the actual footage of some of those eruptions by following the links on our How on Earth website or go directly to NOAA's events program page at www.pmel.noaa.gov slash events. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, you little sleeper. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, you little sleeper.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. As any mother knows, when children get cranky, one of the best solutions is to tell that child to go take a nap. What is less understood is whether or not those naps can be now and then, or whether it's important to keep them regular. With us in the studio now is an expert who has just published a study that looks at the question of napping among preschool children. Her name is Monique Le Bourgeois, and she's a professor of integrated physiology at the CU Boulder Sleep and Development Lab. Welcome to How on Earth, Monique. Thanks for having me, Shelley. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your latest study where you checked out how naps affect a preschooler? Yeah, sure. Um, we studied a group of young kids, uh, two and a half to three years of age, and we wanted to know um, how does not getting enough sleep in the form of missing just one daytime nap um, affect how they respond emotionally to their world. And what ha- So you went to people's homes where they had <laughs> healthy children, and you watched them when they did take a nap, and you watched them when they didn't. Right. So um, we uh, talked, I mean, we worked with kids um, an afternoon after they'd had a nap, and then about a week later on an afternoon when they had not had a nap. And we had these kids perform tasks that were... Um, eliciting different emotions. And um, what we found is that when kids missed their nap, they showed, in terms of their facial expressions, a lot less joy and interest and excitement in a very fun task. And then they also showed a lot more anxiety when they were um, given a challenging task. And the challenge was basically an unsolvable puzzle. And then the last thing we observed was really neat is um, they showed less confusion. And confusion is this complex emotion that tells us how engaged cognitively a child is. So when kids didn't have a nap, they weren't as cognitively engaged with this problem. Hmm. So, Monique, instead of being confused, which is kind of a fun curiosity thing, yeah. they were stressed. They were, they were cranky. Yeah, exactly. Or they were flat. So they had more of a neutral face. So they um, they weren't um, basically they weren't trying to elicit help from their world. Well, I gather that this implies that maybe more children need naps than we think. <laughs> maybe so. Um, yeah, and and the the time when children stop napping varies um, largely between kids. Some kids drop their naps very early on, and they're able to um, hold it together for the entire day and get all the sleep they need at night. But young, uh, many kids need naps, you know, until they're four or five. They just can't get enough sleep at night, and they need that nap to, what I say, make sure that their sleep tanks are full. Their sleep tanks are full. I guess that you have researched enough different ages to know that this isn't just applying to children that are very young. This applies to older children. This applies to teenagers. This probably applies to adults as well. We all need our sleep. Sure. And we live in a society that really values wakefulness more than sleep. There's so many things in our environment that are stimulating. We want to learn, um, especially college students. I mean, they are really, really sleep restricted. And taking a nap could help college students make sure that their sleep tanks are full, just as long as you don't nap too late in the day and the nap isn't too long. So that you don't end up not sleeping at night because you nap too late. Exactly, exactly. You don't want to nap late in the afternoon for two and a half hours um, because that's probably going to disrupt your nighttime sleep or make it harder to fall asleep at that same night. Well, Monique, as a professor of integrative physiology, you're not just observing behavior. You're also wondering what is going on with the circadian clocks inside the brains of people when they sleep or don't. What's going on with the development and the maintenance and repair of the nerves inside the brain? 
Certainly, certainly. That's one of our primary questions in our lab is, how does sleep physiology and circadian physiology change during early childhood? You know, early childhood is a period where we see the emergence of a lot of different sleep problems, bedtime battles, difficulties falling asleep or staying asleep. It's also this kind of this sensitive time for the development of emotion regulation. So it's when kids learn how to express their emotions and control their emotions and cope with their emotions. So we feel that it's a really, really important time to understand these links between sleep and emotion regulation. You know, as somebody who kind of likes to change my schedule sometimes, <laughs> it's so tempting to think that can't we just catch up on sleep later? Yeah. Do you and, think we can? Well, I, I think um, the research on recovery, you know, can you can you restrict yourself one day or maybe be um, not sleeping on the best schedule and then recover um, is a great question. It's a very interesting question. In fact, uh, Professor Ken Wright in our department at CU Boulder is starting to look at the effects of recovery sleep. In your lab, you look not only at behavior, whether kids get cranky, whether right. they can solve problems, but you will look at whether an MRI scan shows the brain is looking stressed or not. You'll look at EEGs to test that out. You'll, you'll look at different physiological factors that tie in with this? Sure. We, we, um, we use um, saliva. We take saliva. In fact, interesting. Another this other, spit. Yeah, another spit story. Um, we take a lot of saliva samples with young kids, and we, um, we assay that saliva for two hormones. One is melatonin, which is associated with the circadian rhythm, and another one is cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Um, and we want to understand um, how does not getting enough sleep, for example, change um, the way that you regulate both of those um, hormones. And what you're seeing is that there can be short-term and long-term effects from disrupting your sleep patterns. Right. And we've only shown short-term effects. We have no idea right now um, the long-term consequences of um, disrupting your sleep patterns, well, having a child's sleep patterns uh, be disrupted. Well, thank you for joining us. And it sounds like you always have research going on. So if people want to check and see if there's a research study that they can be part of, you can go to what website? Um, Sleep.colorado.edu sleep.colorado.edu. Well, thank you again for joining us, Monique Le Bourgeois, who is a professor of integrative physiology at the CU Boulder Sleep and Development Lab. Her study was just published in the Journal of Sleep Research. That's all for this edition of Hell on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bartell and Brianna Draxler. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Genesis and Woody Guthrie. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>